This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this eighth episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at John Sable Freelance number 45 from First Comics, cover dated March 1987. John Sable Freelance number 45 had a cover price of $1.75, meaning I acquired this comic for an impressive 86% markdown. The story, The Hard Way Part 2, was written by Mike Grell with art by Judith Hunt and Brian Thomas. The cover art is by Grell. I must disclose that this was not the issue that came up on the randomizer. But when I covered part one of this story back in episode number three of the podcast, I mentioned that the next time any Mike Grell-related book was chosen, and there are over 100 in the Quarterbin database, I would substitute that issue with this one to finish up the story. In the interest of full disclosure, it was Warlord number 68 that was selected. But that issue goes back into the hopper for future selection possibilities. Now, before I get into the action of this issue, first we need a quick recap from issue number 44. Six years after production closed, the movie The Hard Way is finally being released. The push for the movie going public is because of the death of its star, Paul Goddard. Any movie with him in it is guaranteed box office, even a subpar film like The Hard Way. For the movie's flashy premiere in Cannes, the top crew and cast has reunited, including producer Frederick Miles, director Marshall Cooper, studio promoter Frank Harrington, and performers Deborah Lawson, Bonnie St. Charles, Glenn Forrest, Katie Daniels, and Sable's old friend Gray. Based on a recommendation from Gray, Sable is hired to accompany the group on their yacht trip and protect the last remaining print of the film. The negative was destroyed in a fiery explosion in the last issue, which is a fact that I didn't realize until reading this issue. Whoops. Tension is high on the yacht, as the cast and crew squabble and argue, basically because they're all selfish Hollywood types. The exception seems to be reclusive actress Deborah Lawson, whom Sable has always been a fan of, and who has very pleasant memories of the late Paul Goddard, although she was tricked into a nude scene during the film and has reason for getting the film quashed. In that issue's final scene, a shot rings out late at night. The members of the party all gather, realizing that macho actor Glenn Forrest is not among them. Sable kicks in the man's cabin door, only to find him slumped on the floor, blood and brains coating the wall behind him. Issue 45 itself starts at that exact moment, with Cooper, the producer, exclaiming, What a mess! Sable, kneeling before the dead man, replies, uh, Yeah, a 44 Magnum does that. But the Hollywood douchebag meant something else. No, I mean the red tape, the tie-ups. This'll screw up everything. Sable takes quick control of the scene, letting his experience in intelligence and in investigations show there is no suicide note 
and nobody remembers anything to indicate that he had been depressed, unless you count the seasickness and all the Dramamine he was taking. Gray points out that people don't commit suicide over seasickness. They just get off the boat. Along with Lawson, Forrest is the only other person with nothing to gain from the release of the movie. Since it was filmed, he had gained much success as an action movie star. And despite the fact that The Hard Way contained the best acting of his life, his role as a gay writer might not sit well with his beer-swigging, truck-driving fan base. Harrington, the promoter, steps in to defend the actress. I happened to know Miss Lawson was in Paris when the negative was blown up. And I was on deck with you when Glenn shot himself, she points out. Sable points out that Harrington was nearby when the negative was destroyed, but Harrington brushes that aside with some humor. You don't think much of Miles and Cooper, do you? Sable asks. Just because I do promotion for them doesn't mean I've lost my good taste. Tensions mount between Lawson and her fellow actress Katie Daniels. Glenn was always looking for another notch for his bedpost, trying to prove something to himself. You're just jealous because he left you high and dry, Daniels says. Be glad you weren't his latest notch, honey, Lawson replies, and then says in a very small panel, containing mostly just her eyes, but with a real world weariness to them, it's just not worth the price. The director points out that motivation doesn't matter in a suicide. You're talking like somebody killed Forrest. Somebody did, Sable says, explaining that the gun angle is all wrong, and without a note, the police are going to call this a murder but he proposes that they solve the case before they notify the authorities. First things first, they need to watch the film. Sable dispatches his old friend Gray to grab the print and set up the projector, while everybody else stays with him. When pressed, Sable admits that he doesn't trust anyone else on the boat. We see a dramatic moment in the film, as Paul Goddard is pouring his heart out to a noticeably younger Deborah Lawson talking about how he has little to show for his life, and, and if he could just make one big score. Run that back! Sable shouts. We see the dragon ring, which we learned last issue was Glenn Forrest's trademark, but we see it on Paul Goddard's hand. Cooper, the producer, guesses that Goddard later gave the ring to Forrest. Probably, Sable says, before leaping to an interesting conclusion. Macho star Glenn Forrest gives his finest performance as Paul Goddard's lover. Maybe there was more to it than just a performance. Gray says he knew that Goddard was gay, but Forrest was... The term is bisexual, Lawson finishes his sentence for him before tearing up. It was amusing not knowing who he would bring home next. Of course, he kept it secret, except for his contact and the people who tried to love him. Sable continues, Forrest destroyed the negative and tried to destroy the print to prevent anyone spotting the ring and drawing the same conclusion. That's why Forrest stayed on the yacht despite his seasickness, to try and get at that print. Cooper puts in, and when he failed, he shot himself. That's it. Sable is not convinced, but he does allow them to call the authorities. Later, Harrington, the studio PR guy, finds Sable out on deck and we get a terrific nine-page issue-ending scene. It is nothing but a conversation between two men with just the merest of flashbacks. Harrington takes a swig from his flask 
and asks Sable if he's figured it out. Sable has. I knew you would, but you must admit it was a pretty good plan for Spur of the Moment. Sable admits that it was almost perfect, considering that Forrest's killer was with Sable when the man's brains were splattered on the wall. That sentence is worth repeating. Forrest's killer was with Sable when Forrest's brains were splattered on the wall. Yes, he was shot in the forehead, but he was already dead. Harrington confirms Sable's suspicion that Goddard had died of AIDS, which he contracted from Forrest, and which Forrest knew he was carrying. I couldn't help noticing, Sable comments, how thin Deborah Lawson is. Far from visiting a fat farm, as Cooper thinks, I'd say she's been undergoing treatment for AIDS. So here we have Glenn Forrest, macho star, murdering two men in a studio van to protect his career. He knew he'd passed the virus to Goddard and Lawson and never bothered to tell a single soul. Harrington said that Deborah already suspected Forrest in the van bombing, which made it suspicious that she would lend him her seasickness medicine. I bet there's enough cyanide in some of these to kill an army, Sable says, examining the pill bottle. But the rest had to be you, Harrington. You're the only one who had the opportunity, Sable says, grabbing the boomstick from its harness and starting to unscrew the top from it. And who cared enough? Harrington watched through the porthole window as Forrest collapsed dead after taking a pill from Lawson's medicine bottle. The promoter then used the boomstick, which is about six to eight feet long, to fish Forrest's gun from his holster and lay it on the ground. He then reversed the weapon and fired it through the dead man's temple. Holding up the cartridge, Sable says, I wasn't sure until I found the empty 44 Magnum cartridge, the same caliber as Forrest's pistol, in the boomstick. After killing the shark earlier in the day, in the last issue, Sable knew that the boomstick was loaded with a different caliber bullet. So now what? Harrington asks. Good question, Sable replies. A killer is dead. A ruthless bastard who committed murder to save his reputation and who knowingly spread a deadly disease. And now Deborah Lawson, a victim of his, faces not only her own death, but the humiliation of a public trial and of spending her last sickly days in prison. Sable points out to Harrington that he is guilty of at least obstruction of justice, at which point the PR man jokes that maybe they'll give him a cell adjoining Lawson. Sable, who's been reloading the boomstick, tosses the forty-four cartridge and the cyanide-laced medicine into the sea. Nope, he says, turning away from Harrington. Looks like a suicide to me. Throughout its history, people have found this place disquieting. Strange and unexplained phenomena run rampant, so much so that it's been called the city that lives by night. And the city that lives by night needs a darker form of protector. Black Talon. Please don't kill me! You tell them all. Nocturne is the Talon's hunting ground. Your kind had best look elsewhere for prey. Nightbreaker. What was this? Some sort of joke? No. Gloria, this sounds crazy, I know, but she did shoot me. Something happened. I'm still not sure what, but people don't recognize unless I truly concentrate on their wanting to see me. It's like I'm invisible. 
Ferryman. The ghosts you refer to have done more for me than you two have. They've given me my sight back. <laughs> They've given me better than my sight back. Dreamcatcher. Witches, warlocks, mages, magicians, shamans. Call us what you like. It's all the same. We've helped when we can. Eluded those too ignorant to understand that magic isn't evil. And it's made us sensitive to others who have magic running in their veins. A quartet of heroes standing together must face a new menace. This can be painless, you know. You ain't putting the front as on me, Slag. Just take your shot, yeah? I was hoping you'd say that. Who is going to use the roughest elements of the city? You that rose red bitch? That's right. I'm not even mad at you for adding the bitch part. Because I am. And I know you guys are some of the nastiest, toughest, roughest, meanest bastards in this town. Am I right? Yeah! yeah. Good. Because I have need of you. To send this city. Come on! Down New Roads to Hell. New Roads to Hell, the first Shadow Legion adventure by Thomas DJ. A new novel coming soon from Airship 27. For more information, including character sketches and behind the scenes information, visit the Nocturne Travel Agency at welcome to nocturne.blogspot.com and airship27.com. And we're back. In retrospect, I believe I had this. I said that the killer was reclusive actress Deborah Lawson, and the killer was indeed reclusive actress Deborah Lawson. In retrospect, I also said that I had no idea what her motive could be. And since there was no way I could have guessed quite where this story was going, I'm counting that too. In retrospect, I wish I had paid attention to that scene in the prior issue of the van blowing up with the print in it, it was never clear, at least to me, that that was the negative, or that that scene was anything more than a tone setter. There were pages in that prior issue that were not plot-specific, that did just set the scene or set the tone, so I missed that important plot point. In retrospect, I'm glad that I mentioned the Dramamine and the Dragon Ring. Of course, Grell was not shy about highlighting these items, but still, I'm glad I caught them. And in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't blow off the five pages of Shark Attack last issue. That set up the presence and function of the boomstick and its physical location on the ship. In turning to this issue, we have to first address the big topic, the AIDS-related plot. And we have an opportunity here for some compare and contrast, as we are coming off of an issues-heavy story last episode where I covered Superman's fight in Action Comics 702 with the racist villain Bloodsport. I commented that that issue was just one step away from being a flat-out PSA comic. But this one was so different. While that Superman story I mentioned may just as well have been called a very special issue of Action Comics, this story handles a sensitive and controversial topic in a very organic and subtle way. There is never a sense that this was meant to be the AIDS issue, or the sexual orientation issue. Yes, it was a story in which those issues played a role, but the story was first and foremost. The characters were first and foremost, and the issues were simply explored and presented in that context. And I far prefer this way of handling topics such as this. But on to the comic book itself. 
Although I would have preferred Mike Grell to have done the interior art, I have to say some very nice things here about Judith Hunt, whose career I talked about more in Episode 3. She does a terrific job here, giving us nine separate characters. There is no problem telling who is who, and the characters' faces, bodies, and clothing choices are all unique. That is not always the case in comic books, where some artists seem to have a very limited number of male and female models. But obviously, being such a visual media, this is an important skill for the comics artist. But none of the six men look like each other, and none of the three women do either. That is good comic book art. And like the prior issue, there is a stretch, four pages in this case, without dialogue. There's a great two-page spread of the start of the film, where the credits for the comic are presented, followed by montages of scenes from the film as well as the reactions of the boat party viewing the film. These are very nicely constructed panels. How much direction Grell gave in his script, we don't know. Being an artist himself, maybe he gave a lot of direction in terms of the layouts. Of course, being an artist, maybe he gave very little direction, trusting his artist. However, that collaboration worked. It did work. It was successful. And in that brief scene where we get a little bit of the movie, there is another great piece of art. I commented in the summary how young Deborah Lawson looked in the film, or to flip it around, how much older she looks just six years later. Flipping back through the book, knowing the ending, knowing her condition, she does look a bit sickly, very thin cheekbones, very pale, lean in an unhealthy way. And this is noticeable even more so because we have three small squares of her in the film with a full, healthy, round face. Such an attention to detail. This is a well-crafted mystery story. I've read a lot of detective fiction from Sherlock Holmes to Spencer for Hire. Novels by Agatha Christie, Margaret Marin, and Stuart Woods and Sue Grafton. And this fits right into the mold of a traditional cozy or a classic locked room mystery. I joked a bit about Sable's leap of logic, assuming that Forrest gave a great performance as an actor because he wasn't really acting. But to be fair to Sable, and really to be fair to Mike Grell, we are told over and over that Forrest was not a particularly skilled actor, just an action star. So there is some logic in his deduction here. And of course the great fictional detectives, as logical and analytical as they are, do have flashes of insight where things fall into place and the solution is quickly deduced. So that is not a stretch for a character in the mystery genre. There is some great writing here, both the overall plot as well as the dialogue itself. I was totally gripped by that long final scene between Sable and Harrington on the deck. I also have to laugh that Sable spends much of this issue smoking, as do a few of the other characters, which is of course a total no-no in modern comics. The only part that really doesn't work and actually is hampered by the fact that it has to be drawn is Harrington's use of the boomstick to grab the pistol from its holster and lay it in the right place inside the cabin. Given the length and narrowness of that tool, it just doesn't seem likely that he could maneuver it so quickly and so deftly. And perhaps if that were merely explained and not having to be drawn with the perspective issues that that entails, then maybe that, that would have been stronger. And even if that criticism here of mine is legitimate, that is extremely minor. 
I am assuming that few, if any, listeners have ever read a John Sable comic, despite the Mike Grell pedigree. First Comics was a small press, independent, and not every comic reader in the mid-80s sought out the independence. And I know a lot of comics fans who don't like stories without capes and cowls and strange new powers. I do need to make sure you know that this is not the standard John Sable story. His stories are more likely to be spy thrillers or involve high stakes, international crime, or terrorism. A small locked room mystery like this is definitely not the typical story. In these issues, we don't get Sable's iconic war paint mask or his secret identity, well, cover identity as they say in the spy world, and we only see a little bit of his supporting cast. I said in episode 3 that I was giving issue 44 a grade of incomplete, comparing it to trying to grade the first five pages of a ten-page research paper. But together, taken as a unit, these two issues are definitely worth the 50 cents I paid for them. Total quarter-bin steals. Again, very solid story, told by a very solid storyteller. I don't know if I mentioned this back in episode 3, but these two issues each contain 28 pages of story. And for the bargain-conscious, a price-sensitive, cheap comic book fan, it's hard to find a book that's actually less than a penny a page, even in the cheapy bins. And this one delivers an interesting, well-crafted, and thought-provoking story. I'm a big fan of these issues, and of the entire John Sable series, although I do recognize that reading a story without a superhero may not be what some people are looking for when they pick up a comic book. That wraps up my coverage of John Sable Freelance, number 45, bringing episode 8 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. In episode 9, we will dip our toes for the first time into comic books from this millennium as we read Nick Fury's Howling Commandos number 1, cover date of December 2005. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I am Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.